So there are two readings tonight um, for the sermon. The first comes from Isaiah chapter 43, verse, verses 16 to 21. Thus says the Lord, who makes, way, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honour me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. Uh, the second reading comes from Romans 6, verses 1 to 4. What then are we to say? Should we continue to sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. I like to keep... Romans chapter 6, open there in front of you, page 917, if you're using one of the church Bibles. Uh, it's good to be here with you. My name's Angus. If we haven't met, I'm the newest member of staff here at CCIW, and real joy to be here and to open up God's Word with you. Uh, I realize that for some of you, the 1990s is just something you study in history, but um, one of the great <laughs> food... <laughs> cultural high points of the 1990s was uh, all-you-can-eat, dine-in, Pizza Hut. Some of you remember that? Yeah? Okay, good, good, good. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember going to uh, an all-you-can-eat, dine-in, Pizza Hut and just thinking to myself, what is this place? Are you serious? I mean, you can just fill up your plate as much as you can put on there and then you just take it back and you eat it all up and then and then there's like unlimited refills. And so here I was, a kid of all of about seven or eight, uh, I think at a friend's birthday party because my parents would have never taken me there. And um, I had these, you know, about five or six slices of pizza on the plate and a side of chips and absolutely no salad, which is basically the anti-keto diet, if you're wondering. And I was fully expecting to eat it all and go back for more. Of course, it never ended well. It was an express pass to lying on the floor in the fetal position in, in pain later that afternoon. But uh, one of the things I think that gave you some delight about it, or gave me some delight about this, was this thought that maybe you were just really taking advantage of the situation. Maybe you were exploiting things to your ends. Eat a little bit of food, pay a set price. Eat all the food you could possibly eat. Pay the same price. It just felt like it was such a good opportunity. I wonder whether sometimes we end up thinking about sin and grace a little bit like this. 
See, last week in Romans 5 verse 20, we heard Paul say, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And one of the things you have to know about Christianity, if you want to understand Christianity, is that grace always exceeds sin. There's no amount of sin that can add up, that can exhaust God's grace. God's grace has infinite capacity. And so you, have, you sort of find yourself asking the question, so why not sin more since God's grace is more? That is the, the question, of course, that Paul asks here in uh, Romans 6, verse 1. The poet, uh, ooh, where did that go? Here you go. The po- uh, English-American writer, W.H. Auden, put these words in the mouth of one of his characters in a poem. He said, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Is, that, is there any sense in which that's true for you? I like sinning. God likes forgiving. Man, this is a pretty good deal. What an arrangement. Now, maybe you wouldn't go quite that far. You wouldn't be so brash as to say it. And maybe, at least cognitively, you wouldn't even think it. But in the day-to-day battles of life, in those moments where you feel most of the pull to live for self rather than living for God, well, there's a pretty quick movement to letting yourself off the hook. Because God will forgive me anyway. You know the kind of things that I'm talking about. You get impatient with a family member or friend because, well, one, they deserve it, and two, God will forgive. Or you, you have a prideful heart and you just kind of nurture it a little bit. You just stroke it and cultivate it just a little bit because really no one else ever sees it, and two, God will forgive. Or maybe you're in a relationship that you shouldn't be in and everybody else knows that you shouldn't be in there, but you're not that worried about it because you think, well, God's a God of grace and love anyway, so what's the big deal? The list goes on. You can probably think of other things and maybe the thing that's there in your own heart. Of course, you can frame this up the other way, and it does get framed up the other way by critics of Christianity, people who don't believe. They say something like this. Christianity doesn't work because of grace, and grace leads to immorality. I mean, what what motivation do people have to actually try hard if you don't have to win some kind of divine approval? Doesn't grace just produce worse people. Another way you could put this question, and really I think it's the question that this all comes to a head of in Romans chapter 6 is, does grace change anything? And if it does, what does it change? How does becoming a Christian make a difference in your life? 
And connected to that, and especially maybe in this passage tonight, how does it make a difference when it comes to sin? Well, you might have noticed that in the passage, Paul's answer to the question, should we continue in sin, is a resounding no. And implicit in that no is a resounding yes to the question, does grace change anything? Paul says it does change things. And I think we see that in two ways. See, on the one hand, Paul says that the experience of grace, coming into relationship with Jesus, brings you into a new union. And then secondly, it gives you a new loyalty. And we're going to unpack those two things together. So point one, a new union we're joined to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. See, for Paul, the problem with the question of verse 1 is that it doesn't understand the incredible change that takes place when you become a Christian. You see this in verse 3 and 4. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, most of us, when we think of baptism, we're thinking of the Christian practice of pouring water on people or submerging them underneath some water as a mark of their identification with Jesus. And that is what baptism is, but I think Paul here is actually referring to something slightly different Primarily, it's not that this is only true of you if you've been baptized in a church or in a river or some other body of water. No, saying that being baptized makes you a Christian is like saying that giving someone a ring makes you married to them. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian. Baptism is a mark of, of, of the fact that you become a Christian by God's grace. Faith in Jesus Christ is the thing that makes you a Christian. And, and so what Paul is referring to here is not so much the, the, the practice, although I think the practice really ties in with it. What Paul's referring to is the spiritual reality to, to which baptism, water baptism points. And that spiritual reality is that when you put your trust in Jesus, you are immersed or submerged in the waters of his death and then you raised to new life out the other side when you come back up out of that water of, of his death. And, and so we do baptism and some of you are considering getting baptized because you haven't been baptized and the reason we do baptism is because it's an outward sign, an outward symbol which depicts and points to what is going on on the inside. What the old writers of the prayer book called an inward and spiritual grace that takes place in your life when you put your trust in Jesus, are submerged into his death, and then raised the other side. And so if you haven't been baptized, then can I encourage you to think about doing so? If you're a follower of Jesus, then I think for Paul, he would have said that baptism and faith go hand in hand. It's not pick one or the other. It's if you believe, get baptized. To use a, a ring analogy another way, it's one thing to fall in love. It's another thing to put a ring on it. 
And, and baptism's a little bit like putting a ring on it, right? It's that public declaration of what God has done inside you. But the inside work is that God has brought you and joined you to Jesus Christ. The language that gets used by theologians for this is union with Christ. And union with Christ just means that what is true for Jesus is true for you because you're connected to him. And so, if you look at this passage, you notice that it says that we have died. We have been buried, verse 4. And at the end of verse 4, we have been raised just as Christ has to walk in newness of life. See, Christ died, Christ buried, Christ raised. What about us? Well, in Christ, dead, buried, raised. It's not a perfect analogy, but um, maybe this will help to explain it. Uh, my son Jasper, who's a year old, has been to the Grand Canyon. You wouldn't know it from this picture. Uh, there's my dad, my mum, myself, and my wife, Ali, standing on the south rim overlooking this vast expanse of the canyon. But Jasper's there. He's 13 weeks old in the womb. But he has all his major systems in place and all his important organs. Now, he hasn't experienced it in the same way we've experienced. He hasn't actually seen the Grand Canyon. But he has been there. He's been there because he is in his mother at that point. And so when she goes somewhere, he goes with her. He's included with her. What's true for her is true for him. And in the same sort of way, union with Christ is saying that what's true for Jesus is true for us. It's not that we died the same kind of death that he did. We didn't die on a Roman cross in the same way. But you really did die a spiritual death when you came to believe in Him, if you've come to believe in Him. Now, one of the things I think that Paul wants us to see is that much more happened when we became a Christian than just us receiving a spiritual certificate of forgiveness and justification. Don't get me wrong. We certainly do have assurance that our sins are forgiven and that nothing stands between us and God anymore. But if we think that the only thing that's going on is that we get some kind of a certificate that we can cash in or, or show whenever we fall short and say, ah, forgiven, then we've missed a whole lot of what's going on. See, God doesn't want to just forgive your sins, though he does that. He wants to make you into a new person. And in order to make you into a new person, he's got to kill the old one. That person addicted to sin and enslaved to death. See friends, becoming a Christian is a burial and a birth. It's a burial because... With Christ, as Christ dies, we die spiritually to sin. But it's also a birth. Because as Christ is raised to life, we are raised to walk a new life with Him. 
That's what it means to be united with Christ. And the experience of grace brings us into this new union. Grace changes us. But there's a second way that the experience of grace changes us, at least in these, these verses, and that is that we receive, we get a new loyalty. We're freed from the dominion of sin in order that we might live for God. I think that's what verse 2 is all about. Paul writes, How can we who died to sin go on living in it? See, it's quite important that you didn't just die, you died to something. You died to sin. And in dying to sin, that means that it has... It doesn't have control over you in the same way. It's not the ruler over your life. See, we uh, usually we think of sins and we think of them in the plural, like multiple acts of wrong that you do, things where you you do the thing that you shouldn't do or you don't do the thing that you should. Uh, and, And Paul here is talking about sin, though, in a way which speaks of it as a powerful, dark, ruling force that's opposed to God and to all of the flourishing of people in his world. So sin's goal is to enslave you. Sin's goal is to master you. Sin's goal is to rule you. But what Paul says in these verses is that in the moment that you put your trust in Christ, you die to the sovereignty of sin. It no longer rules you. What that means is that we're talking about uh, status a little more than behavior, though behavior follows from status, and we're going to see next week in Romans that sin behavior is something that Paul's going to deal with. But I read one commentator this week who put it this way. He said, uh, to ask the question, should we remain in sin, is like asking the question, should we remain in France with the expectation that if we do so, we're going to continue to speak French? Do you see how that works? What you do, your behavior, follows from your identity, who, uh, uh, where you are, who, which rule you're living under. If you're living under sin, if you're enslaved to sin, then sin is going to follow. But Paul's saying you don't live under sin anymore. You live under grace. In fact, you're dead to sin. Uh, that's the reason, by the way, why we, our other reading was from uh, the prophet Isaiah, and it was a part of Isaiah which talks about this moment where God's going to do a new war- work and bring a people through water out into a land where they could praise Him. And you're thinking to yourself, hang on a second, a moment where God brings a people through water and out to a place where they can praise Him, that sounds a lot like the Exodus, and you'd be right, because actually what is, I think, being described here is a kind of new exodus moment. And that, that makes sense of the language of baptism, right? As, as Israel is brought through the Red Sea out of the land of Egypt and into the Promised Land, so we, when you become a Christian, are brought out of our land of slavery to sin through baptism and into the land where grace rules. So Eugene Peterson, who... Uh, translates a version of the Bible, the message, puts it this way. He writes, If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, 
how can we still live in our old house there? That's kind of helpful, isn't it? Are you living in your old house? He said, didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? This is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into a new country of grace, a new life in a new land. AFL season started a couple of days ago, and maybe you're an AFL fan, maybe you're not. You could apply this to any sport, but it got me thinking about the moment five, six years ago when Buddy Franklin, superstar player playing for the Hawthorne Hawks, transferred to the Swans. And I just was thinking about it, and maybe you can imagine what it would have been like in that moment if Buddy turned up to play for the Swans wearing his old Hawks kit. I mean, sure, it might feel comfortable. It might feel familiar. In the moment, it might feel like it's the right thing to do, but it's not. It's not the right kit anymore. He has a new loyalty, a new team, and what Paul's saying is that we have a new loyalty now, no longer to sin that used to rule us. We don't owe sin nothing. We're ruled by grace. And we're raised to walk in newness of life. Now, my guess is that some of us here, some of you are still living as if you are enslaved to sin. And maybe that's because when you reflect on it deep down, you realize, well, I've never put my trust in Jesus. I mean, I've kind of shown some interest. I've hung around the sidelines, but I've never really trusted that he could do what I couldn't do. And I mean, if that's the case, then what I want you to hear is that We'll never be free from the dominion and power of sin until we throw everything in with Christ. But maybe you have become a Christian. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. And even though you are, you still feel this terrible sense of shame and guilt and fear that maybe deep down you haven't been freed from it. That maybe it still rules you in some way. Maybe not in all of life, but in one or two ways where you just think, ah, I cannot control it. And if that's you, then what you need to hear is, you died to sin, to that sin, when you put your trust in Christ. See, deliverance from the penalty and punishment for sin, that comes when you realize that Jesus died for you in your place. But deliverance from the power of sin, that comes when you realize that you died with Jesus there, Christ, on the cross. Right? Condemnation, Jesus died for you in your place, Power, deliverance from power comes in realizing that you have died with Christ. And so that's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Man, I need to hear that sometimes. Do you? Angus 
Courtney has been crucified with Christ. If you're into old HBO uh, series, then you may have watched Band of Brothers. And if you know anything about Band of Brothers, then you'll know that it details the exploits of the uh, Easy Company, um, which is a battalion of the 101st United States Airborne Division in the final stages of the Second World War. And there's this little moment that happens in episode three where two characters interact. One of the characters is um, First Lieutenant Ronald Spears, and the other is this trooper named Albert Blythe. And Spears is this figure who's been heroic in the Battle of D-Day, the Normandy landings in 1944. And um, he receives this silver star for his exploits, but... But Blythe confesses to him in this moment of this conversation that when the, the Normandy invasions happened, he found himself in a ditch and he decided just to stay there. And he says, I did it because I was scared. And this is how Spears responds to him. He says, we're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe... The only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier's supposed to function. All war depends on it. See, the Christian life depends on us recognizing that we're already dead. We're already dead to sin. We're already dead to that old life. We've been raised with Christ. Even though we haven't experienced the resurrection of our bodies, we've been raised to start living here and now the new life. To walk in newness of life. One of the things this means is that you can have hope for change in the Christian life. You're not stuck repeating the same things that you've always done. You're not bound to be the same person as your parents. Yes, it's going to be hard. Sure, Paul will say that. Paul acknowledges that and he understands that we have to struggle against sin and it's not always easy and yet, at the same time, we're not beholden to it. It doesn't rule us. We have a new loyalty, freed from the dominion of sin, to live for God. See, it's almost as if you have to ask the question that verse 1 asks, what then shall we say? Should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? You have to ask that question if you understand grace. Because when you really get grace, you realize, well, hang on a second, is this what entails? Is this, is this what it means? But actually, Paul wants us to see, and God wants us to see from this word, that asking that question means similarly that we haven't fully understood grace. Because grace changes you. Grace transforms you. Grace 
brings you into a new union and it gives you a new unity, a, a new loyalty. The um, uh, early church figure Augustine lived in the 5th century uh, in northern Africa and um, he was known, to put it kind of, you know, in a, in a bit more of a um, sanitized way, to have some issues with uh, his, I've lost the words, his, his sexual engagement, right? He, he just, he loved women and he loved being engaged in all sorts of things that he probably shouldn't have been in, engaged in. And um, uh, there's this moment where he becomes a Christian. So this is in his former life. Before he becomes a Christian, there's a moment where he becomes a Christian. And uh, he's walking down the street after he's become a Christian, this is a, a little while after that, and one of the mistresses that he used to know sees him. She recognizes Augustine, so she decides that she's going to call out to him. And um, Augustine doesn't answer. He just keeps walking on by. And she thinks, well, maybe he didn't hear me. Maybe he didn't realize that this is me. And so she calls out, Augustine, it's only I. And Augustine turns at that point and he says, yes, but it is not I. See, friends, that's, that's what takes place when you come to Christ. The old you dies. A new you comes to life in Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. Becoming a Christian is a burial and a birth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing truth of your grace. Grace that forgives us for our sins. Grace that releases us from its power. Grace that transforms us. Would you help each of us, if we're followers of Jesus, to be people who live the new life. People who know that we're dead to sin and therefore eager to serve and to please you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace that changes us. In Jesus' name, amen.